way, if you do not have one of those scripture journals, I don't have one up here, but it, it's just basically just the book of Philippians. Um, we have a few of those. That's also uh, just a gift from our church to you. So if you don't have one of those, uh, make sure you grab one of those on your way out. Uh, we pray that that just would bless you and your time in the word, whether on Sunday or throughout the week. Uh, but once you guys find your Bibles, go ahead and make sure that you are open to chapter 1, and we're going to be picking it up at the end of verse 18. That's going to be on page 980 if you're using one of those black pew Bibles around the room. <clears throat> now, a few weeks ago, when we began to look at the book of Philippians, I made mention that it's going to take us about 18 weeks to walk through four chapters. Now, some of you, when I said that, you, got, you guys thought I was joking. There's no way. I mean, you'd only have to do like a few words at a time to make that 18 weeks. And now you know I am dead serious in that endeavor. And, and here's why I'm dead serious, though. Because I think it's extremely important for us to slow down as a people when we approach the Word of God. When we approach the Word of God. Now, to be fair, I think there will be times, and you guys have seen this just, you know, at Carson Valley Bible, where we will look at maybe large portions of Scripture or look at many different types of Scripture uh, through the sermon. You know, and I think there's a, there's a good place for that, but I hope that the regular diet of the preaching of the Word of God and the hearing in the Word of God for you is just a slow, methodical, method, methodical approach to hearing what the Bible has to say. And when it comes to a book like this, the book of Philippians, which is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, we must see this as a text of thought rather than just mere information. Mere information to know about who, what, when, where, why. And let me explain what I mean by that. And, and I'll do so by just telling you about a book I read. Uh, not super recent, but it's been influential in my life. In 2009... Uh, David Gordon, who was a former pastor, he was retired, um, he was diagnosed with, I believe, just a, a, a cancer that didn't have a, a huge life expectancy um, out of it. And, and just being a, a pastor and loving the church and loving the word of God, he decided that in his, basically his last wishes, his last efforts, what he wanted to do with his life was write a book for pastors. And this book is entitled, Why Johnny Can't Preach. Johnny is this fictional character, which he's basically rebuking how many modern preachers have been influenced by the culture. And, so, and, and by doing so, they can't preach. They can't preach in the way that, that he believed that, that God has called pastors and ministers of the word to do that. In one of the chapters, he, he makes mention of why Johnny can't preach is because Johnny can't read. Not saying that Johnny doesn't, you know, have the ability to actually read the Bible, but what he makes mention of is when sometimes when you read the Bible, and he's talking about pastors specifically, but I think it applies to all of us, we read it for information, such as you read it like you would a magazine, right? You're just trying to get the basic details of who, what, when, where, why. Now, certainly we want those, those details. But when it comes to the Word of God, it's the only book that I know of that you could just look at three words, three words that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we believe that this book 
is the inerrant, inspired word of God, that those three words were intentional. And, and so if needed, maybe we just take a moment to just look at those three words or just a sentence or two. I mean, what other book do you do that in besides the word of God? At least we should. And so we're going to slow down as we have been doing and just kind of walking through this letter just slowly so we can understand exactly what God had in mind when he inspired the Apostle Paul to write this to this church in Philippi, but also to have it be a part of the, the canonized word of God so that even 2,000 years later, we, as a group of people in Minden, Nevada, in the year 2021, can look at this and learn about who God is and what he has done. All right, well... <clears throat> I would say, let's do this. Let's, let's take a moment there. Let's, let's stop. Let's pray one more time. And then, and then I'm going to just w- walk through this text, um, but also one more even before. But please, just bow your head. Will you pray for me in just the preaching of the word as I pray for you and pray for our kids? So let's do that together. Well, Father, we do want to just simply come to you want to simply come to you and let your word be the focus of our attention for the next, you know, 30, 40 minutes, Lord. A small amount of time in consideration of all the amount of minutes that you have given us this day by allowing just our, our hearts to beat, our, our lungs to be filled with air and, and so that we can have this moment together. So God, I pray for each individual in this room this morning that that your spirit, Lord, that you would allow these words to be illuminated, that you would allow the word of God to go forth in their mind, their soul. God, I pray for our kids. I pray for the teachers who are teaching them. God, and even those, those little hearts, that we want them to see that there is a big God who's over them, who loves them, and has revealed himself to them as, just as much as we do in this room. And whether it's big church or little church, <laughs> Father, we, we need you desperately. So God, I pray for each person in the room this morning and even those um, who couldn't be with us but are listening in from afar. God, I thank you. So I pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. So in speaking about the word of God, I want to just point out before I read the book of Philippians what it can do. What it can do. What does the Bible say about itself? Look at this from Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So church, when we come to a text, right, when we open this up and we're going to just walk through this, this is what we expect it to do. This is what we're anticipating it to do because this is what the word of God tells us about itself. And so when we come to a place like Philippians, and we come to a spot where I'm going to read in just a moment, we're going to come to one of the most iconic passages of Scripture that there is. Even if you maybe haven't been a Christian for a long time, or you're not even sure where you're at, or if you've been walking with Christ uh, for a while, which I know many of you have, to live as Christ, to die as gain, is probably a phrase in which you have heard, and rightly so. Probably one of the most impactful phrases that ever came 
from the pen of the Apostle Paul. It's what we're going to do is look at, okay, what, what's the surrounding these verses? Why is that so impactful? Why is that so meaningful? You know, to just start out of the gate, Charles Spurgeon, he would say this about that phrase, to die, to live as Christ, to die as gain. He says this, he says, that is a gospel riddle that only a Christian could understand. Okay, I believe him. Not just because he's Spurgeon, right? He's still a fallible man, just not as fallible as, as some, I think. But because I, I believe that this is what the Word of God actually teaches, and I'm going to show us that through his Word. So let's go ahead and read that passage in Philippians. Let me just read it over you, and then we'll start walking through this. So starting at the kind of the end of verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, yes. And I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full coverage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Church, that is the word of the Lord. Yeah, we're thankful for that. All right. So to live is Christ, to die is gain. What in the world does that gospel riddle actually mean? That's what we're going to look at. All right, so verse 18 begins with Paul saying that once again that he will rejoice. Remember, this is that theme, that joy that's at the forefront of the Apostle Paul's mind. He's writing to this church, right? That's why you'll see these joy signs around, like one over here and the one out in the lobby. Joy is this theme in which Paul is trying to tell this church that there is this joy in Christ that is not dependent on your circumstances. It's not dependent on if things are going well. It's not dependent on if all the things in which you dreamed that you would have growing up came true. But that there's joy in the person and work of Jesus. And that's a joy that can never be taken away. It's different than happiness. Happiness can come and go. You guys know this. But joy, if joy is rooted in a person, in the person of Christ, then it cannot be taken away. So Paul says that he rejoices. But then at the end, I hope you guys notice the, the tense change. He says that I will rejoice. That future tense. Now why? Why does Paul say that he will rejoice? Remember the context in which Paul is writing. And he's writing from a prison cell. He's writing from, he's being, he's chained to an imperial guard as he writes this. Awaiting this trial, awaiting this this execution that is likely coming and ultimately would come to the apostle paul this here and that's an important word for us to is the greek word soteria it's where they get the latin phrase um or i guess more of the the greek phrase where it's soteriology or the, the study of how does god save it could be translated salvation 
So Paul's saying, I know that God is going to work through your prayers and spirit for my salvation. Now, but we need to think about this for a moment then. Is Paul just talking about his salvation from the prison cell? Is he just talking about his deliverance of being able to get the freed from these, these temporary circumstances? Is that what Paul is so secure in? I don't think so. I think he's talking about something greater, that ultimate salvation that comes through Christ, that ultimate salvation that God works all things according to his purpose. And I, and I believe that if you guys jump down for just a second to the end of verse 20, Paul makes mention that it's whether by life or by death. See, if it was just a temporary salvation from prison, Paul would not have made that comment. But yet here he's saying that I know that God's going to be about my deliverance. I know that. How in the world could Paul know that? How in the world could any Christian then, even with Paul, say that he knows that God's going to deliver him? You ever thought about that, church? When someone says they know something about God, or they know that God's going to do this, what do they mean by that? Like, what's the underlying assumption to that phrase, to know? I think it's not to know because Paul knows the future, but he knows the God who's in charge of the future. He knows the God who's sovereign, meaning that he knows the God of the Bible, the God who's in complete control of every situation, every person, every molecule, everything that, that is created has come through and for him. And so Paul, when he says that I know this, he's just reminding himself, and he, I think the church in Philippi, that God is in control, that he is sovereign. That he is sovereign. He knows this God. He knows this God that this is the God who became man in the flesh through Jesus Christ. The man who knew everything that would happen but yet still went to the cross to atone for sin. For the sin, not for himself, but for sinners like you and I. That he knows if, this, if God is in control of all of that, if God is sovereign over that aspect, then God is sovereign over everything. If God is over sin, our greatest enemy, then God can be sovereign over a prison cell or a circumstance. Truthfully, if, if there is something in this life that God is not in control of church, then that means there's something greater than him. And then that he would not be God. So I believe the Bible shows us and teaches us, and it's important for us to believe that God is completely sovereign, in charge of everything. There's not one thing that happens in his created world that he does not know about. I think the Bible even speaks to this over and over again. Steve Lawson, one of a, as a pastor theologian that I've learned a lot from over the years, in talking about this text, he, he makes mention that this, this sovereignty of God in which the Apostle Paul seems to speak about is really the pillow that Paul lays his head on every night. The pillow of God's sovereignty. It's the only way he can close his eyes at night, knowing that it's not up to him to figure everything out, but it's up to one who knows all things and is powerful enough to do anything, to, do, to work his will out in any circumstance. I think that's helpful. That as we lay our heads on the pillow at night, that we would go to bed knowing that there's a God who's in control, who's smarter than me. Man, I'm thankful for that. He's completely sovereign and perfect in everything he does. So Paul lays his head down on that pillow 
And he knows that it will be perfect for him, that he will be delivered. Even if it's not the exact way that he wants to be delivered, he knows that he will be delivered. As I last mentioned last week, but I, I feel like it's, it's worth mentioning again, this great text from the book of Romans, when Paul also makes mention about what does he know about God? He says this in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And here's the big idea, guys. If God has saved you, if God has called you, if God has predestined you, if God has been at work in your life, as what Paul mentioned at the beginning of this book, that if he began a good work in you, he's going to bring it to completion. He's not going to falter on his promises. Paul knows that he will be delivered, even if we keep going in Romans 8. It says this in verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Church, do you see that this is a God who's in control of everything? It's not just one who has called and says, I hope you make it. But it's one who says, I know. If I have called you, if I have started something, if I have determined before the foundation of the world that you are mine, not anything that you have done, just simply because he loves you, and if that doesn't make sense, it's okay. We don't, have a, we don't have a realm for this, this love, honestly. It's why it belongs to God and God alone. But if he has called you, if he has worked in you, if he has predestined you, then he is going to justify, he is going to glorify you in the end, that you will be delivered. It may not be in the way that you think right now, but it will be. It will be certain. You will be delivered, and you can know that. Let me, let me illustrate this the best I can. And I know I talk about my dad a lot, specifically his last year of his life. And, and I do that simply because I think God used that last year in such a profound way of my understanding of who he is, who, who God is, and what he's capable of doing. A few years back when my dad got really sick and he ended up in the ICU um, over in Utah, in Salt Lake City, um, <clears throat> it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad, so my mom, my siblings, and I, we all, we all drove to Salt Lake City to go be in the hospital, try to, try to see him. We, were, we weren't sure if he was going to make it. And, and, and it was really touch and go for really a, a, a lot of the time that we were there. He was really sick. He started to improve, and the doctors felt like, you know, he, he was stable, he was going to live, and, which was a, obviously a huge relief for many of us for all of us, I should say. Um, and, and in the ICU, like typical ICUs, like there's not a whole lot of room for a lot of people, right? And for those of you who have been a part of this church for any length of time, you know that we have a big family, right? Got a lot of, a lot of siblings, you know, got their spouses, got their kids. And so there's only room in the ICU um, in his room for just a few of us at a time. And so as we were leaving, kind of saying our goodbyes, not in the thought we thought he was going to die, but simply... You know, we thought he was getting better. We were going to head home, get back to work, you know, check in. My younger brother, Jacob, and I, we are one of the last people to say goodbye, right, in, in his room. And we are talking to my dad, and I asked him before I left, like many of you guys probably would, to your loved ones, hey, is there anything that I can do for you before I leave, right? Is there any water you want me to get you? Is there any, you know, just ways that I could serve you? 
And my dad looked at me and he said, <clears throat> he said, Luke, will you pray that I would be healed? Now, I found it a little bit strange because my, my dad knew that we had been praying for him, right? We, he knew that, and we, we've talked about that. He knew that we had been praying for him, but yet he looked at me and said, hey, will you pray for me right now? Will you pray for me right now? Which my dad wasn't a, a big public prayer guy. He, wasn't, he didn't pray with his kids a whole lot. And so obviously, I, I, I would have loved to, and I did. And then so I, what I did is I, I, I kind of just laid across his chest while he was in his bed. And I prayed that God would heal him. I prayed that God would deliver him. Now it was just a, a really just a, a few days later or maybe a week or so um, that my dad ended up having some complications and died. But in that moment, even looking back, and my dad, I believe he was a Christian. I believe that even though he had struggles, his ultimate hope was in the person and work of Christ. God answered my prayer. God used my prayer in that moment when I said, Lord, I want you to heal. I want you to deliver my dad from this suffering in which he has, from the effects of sin in which inhabit his body. God, I want you to deliver him from this. God did that. He just did it in the ultimate sense. Not in the way, truthfully, that I was asking for in that moment, but for in a way, I think, which the Apostle Paul was talking about, that ultimate deliverance, that ultimate salvation in which we can know that God will work all things according to his ultimate deliverance. <clears throat> and I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. That this ultimate deliverance that, that he, he's thankful that they're praying for him. And he knows that the Spirit is capable of doing. Notice that, you know, in verse 19 where he says, Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. Because what happens when you become a Christian? What happens when you turn from your sin and you trust in the person and work of Christ? The word of God says that God takes his spirit and he indwells you, believer. Indwells you. And he even uses the language that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Sealed in the way that it can't get out. Not that you can lose it. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose the spirit of God. Because it is the down payment of your deliverance. It is the promise of God in a tangible way, saying, you now belong to me, and I will ultimately bring you back to me. That your deliverance is sure. Your deliverance is final. No matter what happens in this world, that God will never not deliver you, Christian. What a gift that is. I hope that's encouraging for you this morning. I hope that we can be thankful for that. There's joy in knowing Christ. Let's keep going, though. Let's look at verse 20. Paul says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So there's joy. There's point number two. There's joy in living for Christ. And here's where Paul completely opens up, right, about his greatest hope. Right, his greatest value, his greatest goal in his life 
his greatest hope, where his joy ultimately lies. And he says, I'm praying, I hope, it's my eager expectation that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, which is the opposite way of right, how we typically view our body, right? That our body is for us. It's for our purposes, right? For our pleasure. It's all about us. It's not, it's not about for anybody else. It's for me. But here, Paul seems to have the exact opposite reaction where he says, no, I want my body to be for somebody else. I wanted my body to be for the person who created it, for the God who's in charge of it, who knows all things, and he's good. And Paul understood this can only happen if your life is in Christ. Right? If you've been made alive in Christ, if your body has been redeemed for his purposes, and so Paul is saying that joy comes from wanting my whole body to honor, honor, or in other words, could be translated magnify Christ. He wanted his body to magnify the one who saved him. He wanted his body to magnify the one who gave him purpose. Church, I hope you know that the greatest joy that you could seek in this life is to use your body to leverage for the glory of God. Now what does that mean? Like, how, what do you mean use my body for that? Well, it seems like Paul is saying, I want my head to glorify God. I want my hands to glorify God. I want my feet to glorify God. I want my speech, my mouth to glorify God. I want everything about me. If it was created by him, I want it to be for him. And so he speaks to this. I want everything about me to magnify Christ, to honor him. Paul even says, even in my death, even in my death, I want to honor Christ. You know, it's, it's hard to, you know, to think about what those last days might look like, whether we know they're coming or not. I want them to matter, and I want my death to honor Christ. I want to I stand with Paul here and just say, I, I, I may not know exactly how this deliverance is going to come, but I want it to matter. I just want it to matter. I want it to honor. I want it to magnify. I want it to point to somebody else. And then Paul uses that thought, right? That, that train of thought to get to verse 21. Let's look at it again. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That gospel riddle. I think we're starting to see some clarity. What does that mean? What does that mean? Maybe it's helpful to, to point out to you guys in the Greek that is, to live is Christ or to die is gain, that is. Um, in Greek, they don't have that modifier, right? So it could literally read to live Christ is what Paul said. To die gain. What, what he's trying to do, church, is he's trying to see, show this church in Philippi about his own thoughts and his own reasoning, his own convictions, that to live Christ, that it's all about him, to die gain. How? How can we do that? How can we live for Christ? Well, I think that you live for Christ if it's at the center of everything of which you are. If it's the end and goal of who you are, that you see your entire existence in communion with the one who gave it. To live Christ. But let me ask you this, church, because this is, I think, the obvious question that we have to ask ourselves. 
for you. How would you answer that? To live is what? What would you fill in there? If somebody were to know your inner thoughts, right? To know what keeps you awake at night, right? What you think about. To live is what? Are you living for your spouse, for your family, for your job, for the American dream, for security, for health, for pleasure? Is that what is at the bullseye of your life? Now, don't get me wrong. I think all of those things which I just mentioned are good things. But they simply cannot be at the center of your life. And why is that? Why? Because even if they're not necessarily bad things, why can they not be at the forefront of your life? Because they were not created to be. They can't live under that pressure. I hope you know that, that your spouse or your family or your career, it will crumble under the weight if that's the ultimate goal of your life. It was not created for that. It has its purpose. It has its joy. But it's not what you were created for. Not ultimately. So for Paul then, I think he rightly points out, and I think he's encouraging every single Christian that will ever say those words, to live Christ. That's what we want. That's what we desire. Christ is his life. He makes mention of this in the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. It should be on the screen, where he says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So you want to know how to balance your family with your career? You want to know how your spouse and your kids, how it could have a healthy dynamic if they're bound by one central figure, and that's Christ. Because to elevate any single one of those into the middle, it will crumble. It can't hold that weight. It was never created to. So what do you live for? What do you live for? Even if you're just, right, and we have a, we have a diverse you know, church where we have some people who are just starting their careers. We have those who are just ending their careers. We are those who are trying to buy houses. We have those who have just moved into their retirement house. Right? We have this spectrum of what are we going to live for? Because I think both ends, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we are living for? What's at the bullseye? What's at the bullseye? Because it's the same if you're 25 or if you're 65. At least for every Christian it should be. And that's why I think Paul finishes his thought then, where he says, if Christ is my life, he can say, and to die is gain, to die is gain, which only makes sense then. The only way that that phrase, to die is gain, the only way that makes sense if Christ is your life, because what do you get, Christian, if you die? You get more of Christ. You get more of him. You get him unhindered from your sin. You get him in all of his glory. You get him in the most perfect way in which we were created to see him and to know him and to love him. <clears throat> you get him. 
so the die is gain because he is the ultimate point of your life, your worship. You see how radical this is? This thought to die is gain? Nobody else says this. I hope, you, I, I hope you guys understand that. This only makes sense to a Christian. That's why, that's why Spurgeon said this is a gospel riddle that only makes sense to a Christian. Because truthfully, if anything else is at the center of your life, what happens if you die? You lose it. Right? You lose it. You lose your career. You lose your family. You lose all those things in that, in that earthly sense. So it's loss. It's loss. <clears throat> and I know, and there's even this aspect of this that, you know, to die is gain. And, and I know that there's probably many of you who have more friends in heaven than you do on earth right now. And so there's even an aspect of this that to die is gain is because you get to be with them. But ultimately, it's still not about them. It's still about Christ. You get him. You never see anywhere in the Bible say, I'm looking forward to heaven for relatives. Now, can we look forward to that? Those who have believed in Christ and have died before us? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I want to just point out that you never see in Scripture somebody saying, I'm looking to go to heaven because then I get to see my grandma, who was a believer. Now, you always see them pointing to, I get more Jesus. I get to see him on his throne. I get to bow and worship him. Now, certainly, we have a lot to gain, but the ultimate thing that we gain is Christ. That's the end goal. <clears throat> this may be hard to hear for some, but I think it's, it's needed to be said that this only makes sense to a Christian because if you're not a Christian, if you die outside of Christ, the word tells us that you do not go to him. You do not get more of him. You get hell, this place of eternal torment and torture because truthfully, you have traded a shadow of heaven here on earth rather than longing for the real thing with Christ. And so Paul says it, says it, it is to die is gain. To die is gain. Now Paul, he's not done, you know, even though I think many people just kind of quote that and, and move on because it's so good. But I, I want to point us to just the context of which he even explains this position, this this, this thought that flows out of him. Look at, if you keep reading then, in verse 22, what does he say? He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruit for label for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So what is Paul doing in this moment? Right? He just said, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's like, but I got to tell you how I'm thinking about this. I got to tell you that I'm having this dialogue within myself that I have basically these two options, that I do live for Christ and to die is gain. And so there's part of me that, that really desires to go be with Christ, right? Paul has suffered a lot at this point in his life and he knows that there's this sweetness that's going to come in being able to be in the eternal presence of Jesus Christ he's like it would be so good it'd be so good for me to be there but I'm hard pressed between the two like two closing walls because I also know that if God spares me 
and he doesn't bring me home in this moment, then I get more time with you. I get more time to preach the gospel. I get more time to pray. I get more time to write and to teach and to share more people, to, to share with more people about who this God is and why to live as Christ and to die as gain. So I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling. And I love this. I love that Paul has this, this kind of outlook in life. That he knows that to die is gain, but he knows that he has a role on this planet. He has a role on earth. And if you are a Christian, that's true of every single one of us. Which is different than how we usually, right, approach if, if we have some kind of terminal diagnosis or we have something that happened to us. It's like, why? I want to live because so, I have all these things that I want to do. And there's not anything wrong with wanting to do things. But how much different would it be if we had the approach of, I want to live so I could pour more of myself into others. If I could have more time talking about Christ, if I could have more time sharing how good he is. And maybe you're convinced of that, and I hope you are. Because if you're le- living and breathing today, which you all are, that means that this is the reason. Is it's for in the service of God and for others. That's the, that's the great commandment, right? To love God with all all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest thing that we could ever do. And by the way, I think this makes a very dangerous Christian then. A very dangerous Christian to a pagan world. What do I mean by that? Well, let me share with you. Tony Morita, he's a, he has a commentary. He's a pastor over in North Carolina. He describes in one of his commentaries this fictional conversation then that he might have had with these guards Right, that he was chained to, where the guards say, hey, Paul, we don't like you and your Messiah. We're going to kill you. What does Paul say? Oh, that'd be great. Dying is gain. Bring it on. And I'm like, okay. Um, on second thought, we're going to allow you to live. We're going to allow you to live. Fantastic. Living means fruitful, joyous labor. I get to live for Christ. And I'm like, Okay. Well, Paul, we're going to let you live, but we're going to make you suffer. We're going to make you suffer. It's going to be really bad. Paul goes, hey, guys, I consider the sufferings of this present world not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. It would fill me with joy to suffer for his name. Like, gosh, dang it, we can't, there's nothing we can do to this guy. There's nothing we can do to take away this joy that he has. If we kill him, he says it's gain. If we let him live, he says it's for Christ. How beautiful of a picture that is for every single one of us. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. So no matter what happens, the moment that we walk out of this room this morning, we can have hope. We can have joy. We can have deliverance. Knowing that this is true of every single one of us. Church, this is what it means to have a cross-centered life. To have Jesus at the very core of who you are. Paul is so wrapped up in this. He's so wrapped up in this that he will use whatever God brings into his life to magnify Christ in the hope of the gospel. Now, lastly and quickly, verse 26. He says, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So there's joy in glorying for Christ or to have glory in Christ. And that's exactly what has happened in that church in Philippi and also what is happening to us now, right? 
as we're thinking about Paul's life, we're thinking about his word. It's not ending on Paul. It's pointing to something bigger than Paul. It's pointing to the glory of Christ. And that's another word to say that's, that's going to the boasting of Christ, to the magnification of Jesus, what he has done. And that what God has began in us, he's going to bring it to completion. And we can glory in Christ when we walk out of this room. We can glory in Christ as we sing a song here in a moment that talks about, I will glory in my Redeemer. See, Paul is saying that my life then, he's thankful and he's convinced that God's not going to kill him or not gonna, he's not going to be killed in this moment because God has more work for him to do. And that's ultimately what would happen. Paul would be released. He would go on to write books like First and Second Timothy and Titus help plant more churches. He would be arrested again, and then he'd be executed. That does happen. But he knows that the time that he has, the time that God's going to give him, there is going to be this glory to Christ that's going to be a result of it. And he is absolutely right. So how do we end this, though, today? Right? How do we end this? How do we end thinking about this? Well, I think we obviously have to go back to that question, what are we living for? What's at the center? To Christ or to live Christ? Or is it to live something else? All of those things that we like to fill into that center, that bullseye, don't have to be bad things. I'm not saying that you should not care about your family or your career or your spouse, right? Or any of the good things which I think God has given his people but they, those good things cannot be God things. They cannot be the purpose of your life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And at the end of the day, who do you want to boast in then? What do you want to boast on your way out? Yourself? The things of this world? Or Christ? The one who you're about to gain. No sin dampening, dampening that reality. I can't wait. So what do we live for? May it be for Christ who, who showed us what he lived for. He lived for God's glory. And he actually did come and live and die for the people in whom he loved most. Ultimately, that was the glory of God. But certainly our salvation is tied to that. For those who have turned from their sins and trusted in what Jesus did on the cross counted for them. That we should all right? Get hell because our sins, even if it's just one. I think we can all agree that we've sinned at least once in this life, but yet Jesus, he went to atone for the sins of all of us, every single one of them, not just the one because there's much more than that, but every single one of us then can walk out of here believing and trusting what Jesus did on the cross, counted for them, and the reason then that you are living and breathing today is because Christ is your life and to die as gain whenever that day comes. But for now, to live Christ. All right, let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> well, Father, I, I want to just end our time in your word by coming to you once again. That you are a good God. That you're a good God who gives people like me. Ones that outside of you, I just, I'd be dead in my sin, unable to save myself because I couldn't, I could never take back how I have rebelled against you, how I have not loved you perfectly. 
But God, I thank you for your work on the cross, Jesus. And I thank you that you've allowed books like Philippians to be written so that I may know that no matter what happens, then in my Christian life is in vain. And that whether I find myself in prison, whether I find myself in a hospital bed, whether I find myself just pleading with you on my living room floor, that I know that I can be delivered. I know that my, those that love you and are called to you will be delivered. And I can lay my head, Lord, on the pillow of your sovereignty tonight. Thank you for that hope. I've got to pray for those who don't know you this morning. We've got to pray that you would allow these realities, these truths, they're not my truths, that you can ignore, but they are your truth, the truth. And that, God, that you would allow those that don't know you to not only know you, but to be able to see and respond to you this morning, to turn from their sins, to trust in you, to take what was once at the center of their life and put you at the center of their lives. And may that be our hope. God, I pray all of this in your mighty name, Christ.